The Tom Woods Show, episode 1736. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. A lot of our people complain that the Pentagon spends and wastes a lot of money, but the damage it does to the American economy and to American society is much greater than just that. It deforms the economy in ways most people don't even realize. Get the full story in my free ebook, The Pentagon Versus the Economy. Pick it up at militaryeconomy.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. All right, I'm rectifying an injustice from a week or two ago. I played for you a lecture I gave as part of a seminar I delivered at the Mises Institute all the way back in 2001. What a young lad I was in those days. And it was a two-part lecture, and I played you only part one because I'm just, I'm, sometimes I'm a tease, all right? And it was about the history of the presidency, but particularly how the U.S. presidency grew in power over time. And then I just left you hanging, and I didn't bring it to the present day, or I didn't continue the presentation. Here's part two. Now, you may say to me, Woods, I didn't hear part one. This talk is designed to be listened to independently of part one. It might be, you might feel more enriched if you've heard both parts, but you're not gonna be lost if you, so don't, don't go fumbling for that previous episode. You listen to this one first. Maybe you're listening to them out of order. You know, lightning's not going to strike. It's okay. This is a standalone talk, and it's about, you know, there'll be a bunch of bad guys in it, so be prepared. But this is Woods in his capacity as a historian, not delivering a lecture in front of a rah-rah crowd at a big rally or anything like that where I am more humorous and off the cuff and whatever. This is more formal. So if you're looking for that Woods wit that you enjoy, maybe there's not as much here as you might normally expect, but I'm just trying to do my job and stay on topic and make the Mises Institute people happy. So here we go. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, well, returning to where we left off, I'm going to keep talking about presidents until till the end. And uh, this morning... My order of, of business was to say a few general words about the presidency, then to talk about it, give an example, give Theodore Roosevelt as an example of somebody who radically transformed the office, and then finally to discuss the evolution of presidential war powers and what the original intent was and what has actually happened over the course of time. And among other things, I, I mentioned that um, you know, I was explaining the president was thought to have largely... Uh, I don't want to say entirely a ceremonial office because he does have some important functions, but certainly much more so than the presidency that we have now. And that's we can see that also, by the way, in the very fact that although the president in the Constitution does have the authority to veto legislation, even that in early American history was viewed as a questionable exercise of presidential power. It was strictly legal, of course. But at one point, the Whig Party actually, uh, in effect, announced people that if they elected the Whig candidate that he would not exercise the, the veto. So even that was, was viewed as questionable. The legislature should be deferred to. Now going over the question of presidential war powers, my intent was to show that the constitutional framework was one in which the overwhelming bulk of responsibility for foreign policy would reside in the legislative branch. And we can see that through the division of tasks pertaining to foreign policy, the vast bulk of them are either in, the, in Congress's court or are jointly shared by Congress and the president, with the president having as exclusive powers only 
the power to receive ambassadors and to act as commander-in-chief carrying on a, a war declared by Congress. And this is the, the consensus, overwhelming consensus, that this is by people at the time this was what the intent was. And then I tried to go through some early examples in American history of the use of presidential war power, and particularly early examples that have at times been cited as forerunners of more modern examples of the exercise of presidential war power, such as the quasi-war with France or the struggle against the Barbary pirates, both of which I tried to show were in fact authorized by statute. In fact, a famous scholar of presidential war powers on the particular point of the quasi-war with France says that it's altogether false to argue that this was just a presidentially initiated undeclared war. Again, continuing with uh, with Wormuth, he says, the fact is that President John Adams took absolutely no independent action. Congress passed a series of acts that amounted, so the Supreme Court said, to a declaration of imperfect war, and Adams complied with these statutes. Okay, well, so now we'll just continue from there. I, I'd, I'd left off with a point pertaining to the Monroe Doctrine, and now there are, there are still other, other things to discuss. Of course, the Mexican War naturally would arise in this context. The Mexican War, of course, is 1846 to 48. And on the, the eve of that war, there were a number of, well, grievances that Mexico had against the United States and a number of unresolved issues that the United States had with Mexico uh, involving uh, unpaid debts to American citizens, involving the desire on the part of the U.S. administration to acquire some Mexican territory, like California, for instance. There was a desire to have uh, territory on the West Coast, so that therefore it would be more, it would be easier to, uh, among other things, to engage in Pacific trade and the like. And the Mexican government was reluctant to part with territory. The Mexican government also had a standing grievance, of course, over the issue of Texas. Texas had declared its independence as early as 1836. Mexico had initially recognized that independence, but really only under duress. I mean, almost literally, uh, the Mexican uh, ruler Santa Ana, in effect, practically had a knife to his throat at the hands of, of Texas uh, independence fighters who said to him, do you recognize Texas independence? And of course he said yes. But then as soon as he got away, he said, of course, I don't recognize it. So for nine years, the Republic of Texas considered itself to be an independent republic, but Mexico did not recognize that independence. So it was only in 1845 that you got the uh, United States annexing Texas. Texas had applied for admission to the Union several times and been denied each time. Had been denied by Andrew Jackson and uh, I believe Van Buren. And then initially there was an attempt by John Tyler that was not successful. But then as practically the last thing that John Tyler did before he left office was that he managed by joint resolution to get Texas annexed. Tyler was obsessed, it seems, with securing a place for himself in history. And he thought that the annexation of Texas would would do just that. So he managed to do that. And that was in the wake of the election of James Polk. Since Polk had been in favor of Texas annexation, Tyler could, in effect, go to Congress now. And he wouldn't have to say it in so many words. But we've now seen through a presidential election that there does seem to be, since Polk quite clear that he was an expansionist and he wanted Texas, there seems to be popular support for this. So let's go ahead and enact it. Well, of course, the Mexican government considers this uh, yet another insult. But more specifically, there was a dispute over what the precise southern boundary of Texas was. 
Was it the uh, the Rio Grande River that it is today, of course, or was it the Nueces River, which was much further further north? So there was a disputed amount of territory, regardless of the overall disposition of Texas and its having declared independence and whether Mexico considered that legitimate or not. There was the more specific question of what is the southern border of Texas, even if it is a fait accompli that it's now part of the U.S., which border is the legitimate one? So there was this there was a disputed area. There was an attempt by Polk's administration to resolve these outstanding issues through negotiation uh, by sending John Slidell, a diplomat, down to Mexico to discuss them. But the Slidell mission was a complete failure. Uh, in effect, no Mexican government would really dare to meet with an American official at that point uh, for fear of being overthrown by an angry population. So Slidell had to return empty-handed. And it seems quite clear the Polk administration wanted wanted the Mexican uh, the Mexican government or Mexican soldiers to initiate war to carry out an act of aggression so that the United States decision to counter that aggression would be perceived as an act of self-defense. I know this is a very familiar story, of course. Well, uh, Polk didn't have to worry about because apparently at a at a cabinet meeting, there was talk in the White House of, um, you know, what can we do to manipulate the. Mexicans into firing the first shot, but they found out that the Mexicans had already fired a shot. Well, that solves that issue. And, and President uh, Polk went uh, uh, before, you know, said to the country that Mexico has shed American blood upon American soil. Mm. Well, it so happens that this this was the term of office in which Abraham Lincoln was in the Congress, and Lincoln during his term uh, introduced something called the Spot Resolution into Congress. The spot resolution consisted of a demand that Polk clarify for the country the exact spot on which American forces had been fired upon. Because Lincoln and others suspected that, in fact, what had happened was that American troops had been placed not along the the Nueces River, but in fact in the disputed area in which it was, if not a certainty, then a very great likelihood that they could provoke an attack because Mexico did not acknowledge that they had lost that that disputed territory. So what was the spot? Lincoln wanted to know where where was that where were those shots fired on Americans? Well, eventually it became clear that the shot was fired in the disputed territory and that Polk in effect had sent troops into territory uh where it must have been foreseen that the consequence would be at least some kind of battle if not war. Well, Polk in effect said to Congress war exists. But nevertheless, Congress two days later, officially declared war. But in 1848, the war ends in 1848, Congress voted 85 to 81 to censure President Polk and declared that the war had been, quote, unnecessarily and unconstitutionally begun by the President of the United States because of the results of that spot resolution. Now, that is significant because, again, there are people in American history who aren't afraid to say obvious things. To a president, okay, and, and who censure presidents for, for things other than things we've seen them be censured for in recent years. Now, following the Mexican War, we have an incident of, to my mind, rather great significance in Nicaragua in the 1850s. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that gives the president the authority to protect American lives and property abroad. But on many occasions, presidents have exercised authority. For that purpose, and they haven't typically cited, um, you know, they haven't said that you know Congress has authorized me to do this. Uh, typically, they've claimed that 
there are certain executive powers that are implied in the very nature of the executive. And one of those powers is the power to protect American lives and property, including business property, uh, abroad. Well, one example of a president carrying out this power occurs in 1854 in a, in the Nicaraguan port of Greytown, which is, it's, it's no longer called Greytown, it's called uh, San Juan del Norte, but at that time it's called Greytown. Now, an American ship was ordered to that port because local authorities in, in the, the town of, of Greytown, which is a small town, had, number one, uh, insulted an American diplomat down there, and number two, had carried out really quite, uh, you know, quite inexcusable acts of aggression against uh, American property, uh, they had destroyed some buildings of an American firm, for example. And all these complaints about property losses and, uh, and, and this affront to an American diplomat led to this call uh, for an American ship to go to this port and, in effect, demand some kind of restitution from the locals. Well, when the American commander decided that uh, these local folks had not made appropriate amends for their misdeeds, he went ahead and bombarded the town, and he bombarded it for 45 minutes, then he'd stop and wait to see, are you people going to give in? No. Then he'd bombard it again. Then he'd wait a while. Are you people going to give in? No. Then he'd bombard it again. Uh, the people, since they'd been warned, the, pe the people themselves had been, had been evacuated, so thankfully no one was killed. But when finally, after several times of pausing to see if anyone was going to make any kind of official uh, surrender or any kind of official statement that they would make amends now, uh, after all of that came to naught, American forces finally went ashore and burned down every remaining building in the whole town. Now, President Franklin Pierce reported this to Congress, and he spoke very highly of what the American commander had done in this incident. He said the commander warned them by a public proclamation that if they did not give satisfaction within a time specified, he would bombard the town. By this procedure, he afforded them opportunity to provide for their personal safety. To those also who desired to avoid loss of property and the punishment about to be inflicted on the offending town, he furnished the means of removing their effects to boats of his own ship and of a steamer which he procured and tendered to them for that purpose. So you see, that's not so bad. Just you, if you, you can bombard the town as long as you evacuate the people and you know three or four of their belongings. Well, later on, a resident of Greytown uh, tried to sue for damages to his property during the bombardment. But in 1860, a federal circuit court declared that the commander's actions uh, were in fact defensible, and they were an extension of the executive branch's authority to protect lives and property in foreign countries. The court said. Now, as it respects the interposition of the executive abroad for the protection of the lives or property of the citizen, the duty must of necessity rest in the discretion of the president. Acts of lawless violence or of threatened violence to the citizens or his property cannot be anticipated and provided for, and the protection to be effectual or of any avail may not infrequently require the most prompt and decided action, so that if American property is to be protected, then not infrequently that may require the most prompt and decided action. So in other words, the destruction of, of Greytown. Now what's interesting is that James Buchanan at that time was an, was an American diplomat who was speaking to the British government about this incident and he assured them, he was absolutely certain that this must just have been the action of a, of a rogue commander 
uh, and that the, the U.S. government would certainly disavow this behavior. But then he found out from the Secretary of State that no, in fact, the U.S. government was going to defend what this commander had done to that town. And so poor James Buchanan has to turn around to the British government and say, oh, all right, well, remember what I said yesterday? Forget that. Uh, we are defending this, this position. So it's a sort of an embarrassing situation for poor Buchanan to be in. Well, once James Buchanan himself became president, you know, and was inaugurated in 1857, he himself spoke about what had happened at Greytown and what exactly the powers of the president were in regard to the protection of American property abroad. And he said that, they, that the executive branch, quote, in its intercourse with foreign nations is limited to the employment of diplomacy alone. When this fails, it can proceed no further. He went on to say that the president cannot legitimately resort to force without the direct authority of Congress, except in resisting and repelling hostile attacks. So there, there again is the absolute mainstream view that the president uh, can, can engage in defensive action but cannot initiate on his own authority offensive action. And then speaking specifically about what had happened in Greytown, Buchanan said that the president, quote, have no authority to enter the territories of the territories of Nicaragua, even to prevent the destruction of the transit. That was the company that was uh, that was attacked and protect the lives and property of our own citizens on their passage. And he went on to say in 1859 uh, that although countries like Great Britain and France that he called executive governments because their executive branches were so vigorous, he said they they could actually use military force. Uh, to defend life and property of their citizens. But he said, quote, not so the executive government of the United States. He said that if the United States president sends a vessel of war to some port in order to obtain redress for uh, grievances, he said, quote, the offending parties are well aware that in case of refusal, the commander can do no more than remonstrate. He can resort to no hostile act. The remedy of this state of things can only be supplied by Congress since the Constitution has confided to that body alone the power to make war, and then so on. Now, a little bit later, Congress, in fact, legislated on this matter of the power of the president protecting the lives and property of Americans. And in 1868, there was legislation passed that is still in effect to this day that, in effect, limits what the power of the president is in this situation. The president can demand of a foreign government an explanation for its its behavior or depriving an American citizen of his freedom or property. Uh, the president can demand the release of a citizen who's being unjustly held. Uh, he can use means not amounting to acts of war to, to obtain the release. Anything further than that would require congressional authorization. So here was a loophole, and Congress was reasonably, with reasonable dispatch, uh, filled the loophole. Okay, I already mentioned during the question session uh, last time about what happened in the 1890s in the situation with Cuba. Spain uh, had Cuba as a colony and was, in order to fight a, a guerrilla war there, they were engaged in sometimes quite, uh, quite terrible tactics that uh, became known to Americans. And that under the second term of, of Grover Cleveland, there was this, uh, this, this agitation for war on the part of some congressmen. And Cleveland, in effect, said that even if you declared war, he would simply not mobilize the army as commander in chief. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if that would ever happen. It's just very hard for me to imagine a state of affairs in the country where the Congress would declare war and the president would not want to go to war. 
I just can't imagine it happening. But it's interesting that it nearly happened here, and it goes to show what would happen in the case of, of such a situation. Now, also in that decade, we get an incident that is easily overlooked because it seems on the surface of it to be relatively minor, but it does have significant implications for presidential war powers, and that's something called the Boxer Rebellion. The people known as the Boxers were called the Boxers because they were anti-foreign Chinese fighters who resented the fact that, that foreigners were in effect carving up their country, were acquiring for themselves what are called extraterritorial privileges in their country, and they resented that. I mean, they're, they're sometimes they're called xenophobic, but, you know, I mean, I think it's at least moderately understandable why they'd be upset about what was happening in their country, that various countries were carving out spheres of influence in China uh, for themselves. Uh, but the boxers, in fact, uh, could turn violent. Uh, there were uh, Christian missionaries, uh, Chinese converts, French and Belgian engineers, a German diplomat. Uh, uh, all these types of people were, were targeted. Uh, and uh, in the case of a German minister, was killed uh, in 1900. And in response to that, several nations sent troops to restore order amidst this, this growing terror. Uh, the, the group, by the way, they're, they're called the Boxers because the, the Chinese translation of their organization's name ends with the words harmonious fists. And so, you know, sort of as if to put them in contempt, just call them the boxers because they have harmonious fists. Well, in any case, President McKinley, U.S. President McKinley, contributed 5,000 American troops. Now, this is an apparently minor action. But Walter Lefebvre, who's a great historian at Cornell, uh, notes this. He says, McKinley took a historic step in creating a new 20th century presidential power. He dispatched the 5,000 troops without consulting Congress, let alone obtaining a declaration of war, to fight the boxers who were supported by the Chinese government. Presidents had previously used such force against non-governmental groups that threatened U.S. interests and citizens. It was now used, however, against recognized governments and without obeying the Constitution's provisions about who was to declare war. But because it was such a minor action, hardly anyone really gave it much notice at the time, although in retrospect we can appreciate its significance. Oh my gosh, I almost consumed that. I'll explain this all to you later. I don't even know what's in that glass. Sick people. Sick, deranged people at the, at the Mises Institute. That's right. Unbelievable. Okay, let's carry on, shall we? Let's think about World War I instead of this mysterious uh, chemistry experiment that is up next to me at the lectern. Uh, World War I, okay. Um, it is true that President Wilson went to Congress and got a declaration of war uh, to get into World War I. But there's still, there's still some things we can say about Wilson with regard to war powers and also related to World War I. Because as I think many people realize, one of Wilson's great dreams was to establish the League of Nations. Okay, something called the League of Nations. Uh, because he believed that an international organization of the nations of the world would in fact be able to prevent war in the future. Okay, it, 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 that's why World War One was the war to end all wars, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, because the League of Nations would prevent future wars. Okay, there'd be collective security against aggression, and uh, you'd be able to put an end to war once and for all. So, he's, so he believes this is the role the United States can play in the war, which is to try to work out a just peace settlement that would include the League of Nations as one of its planks. Well, the League of Nations created some controversy in the United States because of Article 10 of the Covenant of the League of Nations. Uh, and the relevant portion reads, uh, 
Members of the League undertake to respect and preserve, as against external aggression, the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. In case of any such aggression, or in case of any threat or danger of such aggression, the Council shall advise upon the means by which this obligation shall be fulfilled. Well, that's not actually a very precise statement, because does it mean, I mean from the American point of view, that the, the question was, on the part of many skeptics, does this obligate the United States to involve itself in every conceivable conflict that could break out between members of the League of Nations? I mean, what if it's, a, what if it's an obscure border dispute that Americans don't even understand? Would they have some kind of obligation, enforceable obligation, or any kind of obligation, to, to enter? And could the president send troops into such a war and claim that he had the right to do so on his own authority because, hey, after all, I'm just fulfilling our obligations under the League of Nations. There was concern about this. There was a desire for clarification. Now, most of the people who called for clarification of Article 10 of the League of Nations Covenant were not isolationists. It's a terrible, uh, misleading word anyway. But most of these people were not non-interventionists. There, there, there really weren't very many non-interventionists. Uh, most of these people were what we would maybe today call uh, foreign policy realists. You know, people who say that we should intervene in this or that place, but only in pursuit of American interests, whereas the Wilson types would be more likely to say, well, we should intervene if we think we can advance democracy and that sort of thing. So they were all interventionists with relatively few exceptions. But still, it is an important point that uh, the, the so-called realists or, or uh, the opponents of, of the League said, like Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts was, was concerned about this. So Lodge uh, has named after him the Lodge Reservations. They wanted to insert into the, the Covenant of the League of Nations certain reservations. So it would read, the United States assumes no obligation to preserve the territorial integrity or political independence of any other country under the provisions of Article 10, or to employ the military or naval forces of the United States under any article of the treaty for any purpose, unquote, except in any particular case in which Congress, which possess the exclusive right to declare war, shall so provide. And the preamble to the list of Lodge reservations also provided that American ratification of the Treaty of Versailles would not take effect until at least three of the four major allied powers should officially accept these reservations. Now, Wilson did not favor any such clarification of Article 10, uh, in effect, which he viewed as a watering down of Article 10. And so he explained to his fellow Americans, I am not one of those who, when they go into a concert for the peace of the world, want to sit close to the door with their hand on the knob and constantly trying the door to see that it is not locked. If we want to go into this thing, and we do want to go into it, we will go in it with our whole hearts and settled purpose to stand by the great enterprise to the end. Well, Wilson came back to the United States, crisscrossed the nation to gain support for the treaty, and was routinely accusing his opponents of just ignorance or malice, because these are the only explanations for why someone would oppose this. Uh, in fact, for, for people who said to, to Wilson, we're afraid the League of Nations will compromise American sovereignty, Wilson said that he looked forward to the day, quote, when men would be just as eager partisans of the sovereignty of mankind as they were now of their own national sovereignty. And, and I know people are collapsing in the audience out here as I read this. Um, f f former President William Howard Taft, we all remember William Howard Taft, who supported the League, nevertheless was aghast at Wilson's behavior. He said, it is impossible 
for him to explain the league without framing contemptuous phrases to characterize his opponents. The president's attitude in not consenting to any reservations at all is an impossible one. Thomas Fleming, not, not the editor of Chronicles, but the historian, Thomas Fleming writes in, in his book, The Illusion of Victory, a book that's hated by all the bad guys because it's revisionist on World War I, as if, as if it takes a lot of courage to be revisionist on World War I. I mean, but my gosh, obviously World War I is idiotic and foolish. The more the president talked, says Fleming, the more he convinced a majority of the senators that the treaty needed these reservations to protect the country against a League of Nations run by a leader like Woodrow Wilson, a wild-eyed idealist who would embroil the country in bizarre attempts to perfect the world without the consent of the American people. Now, about 20 years, just about 20 years later, 1936, there's a key Supreme Court decision that has been seized upon by supporters of a, of a vigorous executive power in foreign policy. And that's the case of United States versus Curtis Wright Export Corporation, or we just simply call it Curtis Wright. Some have said that this could well be the most frequently cited case involving uh, the question of how are foreign policy powers allocated among the branches. Now, the case in and of itself deals with an extremely minor issue. It deals with the issue of whether it was constitutional for a joint resolution to be passed authorizing the president to halt arms sales to Bolivia and Paraguay. So it doesn't, on the surface of it, seem that's going to have momentous consequences. But as we know, justices sometimes engage in obiter dicta, where they'll, they'll just go on to discuss other matters in their decision that do not touch directly on the case at hand. Uh, also, dicta is, is occurring when you have a case where the, 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 uh, the justice has no jurisdiction to hear the case, but still goes on blah, 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 blah. Okay, like, like um, John Marshall in uh, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, he says, I can't hear this case because the Cherokees are not American citizens, but let me tell you my opinion anyway, that would be considered dicta. And sometimes the important sections of the Dred Scott decision are considered the same way because if Roger Taney doesn't think Dred Scott is a citizen, that should just end the discussion. If that's his opinion, then he has no authority to hear the case. He should not go on for 45 single-spaced pages talking about slavery in the territories. He would have saved everybody a lot of grief. Well, it's, it's the dicta of this, of this decision that caused all kinds of controversy and mischief. Now, the court's decision uh, was composed by Justice George Sutherland. And it w it's been said, it was later said by Professor Thomas Reed Powell at the Harvard Law School. He told his students, just because Mr. Justice Sutherland writes clearly, you must not suppose that he thinks clearly. And it is, I think, an important caution. In effect, what, just, what uh, Sutherland says, Justice Sutherland says, is that domestic and foreign powers of the U.S. government derive from different sources. They, they don't all derive from the Constitution. He says the domestic powers derive from the Constitution. The states delegate powers in Article I, Section 8 to the Congress. Foreign policy powers, though, are different, he says, because those powers, he claims, powers of external sovereignty, and then to use his words, passed from the crown, British crown, not to the colonies severally, but to the colonies in their collective capacity of the United States of America. And so therefore, foreign policy powers, because they come to the U.S. central government directly from the crown, are not dependent upon any constitutional grant. Now, that's a strange statement, first of all, for a number of reasons that I'll get to in a second. 
But even if we accepted this as true, even if we accepted that somehow only domestic powers are delegated by the Constitution, whereas foreign policy powers come right from the crown and don't, don't need any particular grant from the Constitution, that still doesn't explain why the president would be the one who would exercise those powers. I mean, well, why wouldn't we still have the Congress exercising them? It, I mean, it doesn't answer really the question that, that's at hand. But more than that, this idea that powers were passing from the crown to the United States in the aggregate can be refuted by some of the evidence we looked at earlier this week. Because there is no United States government that acts in the aggregate in 1776 or in, well, even in the early 1780s, I should say, uh, when the war is concluded. The British recognized 13 separate sovereign states, states that exercised attributes of, of and uh, made clear they possessed attributes of sovereignty. We have the Articles of Confederation saying that the states retain uh, their entire sovereignty, freedom, and independence. Uh, and we also have Federalist Number 45. In Federalist Number 45, James Madison says the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution are few and defined. And he says they will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce. So he clearly says that these things are, in fact, being delegated to the federal government. So this isn't just me being flippant and maybe I should take this guy more seriously. This is a bizarre decision. There's no other way of, of, of looking at it. And yet it's been cited again and again in favor of the idea that the president has a very, very broad discretion uh, at, uh, at his disposal. And, of course, um, in fact, he does, he does not. There's that. So that's the Curtis Wright decision. Somebody should, somebody should denounce it more often, I think. Now we, we start to get the modern, the, the modern view, of course, is really that there, there are hardly any restraints on the president worth mentioning. I mean, it's true that there was a War Powers Resolution, more commonly known as the War Powers Act of 1973, but it's got loopholes you can drive a truck through, and it obviously in practice has not prevented very much of anything. The watershed point was the Korean War. 1950 to 53, because that war breaks out, uh, the no North Korea invades South Korea, and the United Nations, you know, condemns this and authorizes use of force, and so Harry Truman commits American forces to, uh, to battle in the Korean War without securing a declaration of war from Congress. And why does he not get a declaration of war? Because he says it is not a war, it is a UN police action. And so, therefore, I don't need a declaration of war because it's not a war. It's a police action. Okay, well, you can assess the strength of that argument uh, if you like. But, in effect, he is doing exactly what opponents of the League of Nations feared that a president might do, claiming that the authority of this supranational organization obviates the need to go to the Congress, which is the, which is the branch of government in which is reposed the power to declare war. Now, there are some people, uh, there were some people at the time who criticized this. One of them is Senator Robert Taft, a Republican from Ohio. He was called Mr. Republican, by the way, Mr. Republican. And here's what Mr. Republican said. My conclusion, therefore, is that in the case of Korea, where a war was already underway, we had no right to send troops to a nation with whom we had no treaty to defend it against attack by another nation, no matter how unprincipled that aggression might be, unless the whole matter was submitted to Congress and a declaration of war or some other direct authority obtained. Very clear, okay? Very, this, this was stated by Mr. Republican. Whereas now Mr. Republican has become Congressman Ron Paul, in effect, in this sense of being Mr. Republican. And yet, even on this point, even saying that the UN declaration, the, the UN authorization, this UN police action 
gives me the authority to intervene. Even that uh, is highly questionable at best because the relevant UN documents and UN charter make clear that when countries go to war in some way under the auspices of the United Nations, they nevertheless do so following the, the constitutional uh, um, means for declaring war that each respective country uh, has in place. So that, that does not mean that if the United Nations says we should do something or encourages uh, some use of force, it doesn't mean that you just ignore your, your country's constitutional procedure for declaring war. It takes for granted that uh, you, in fact, follow that, that procedure. Now, at the time of, the, of, of what happened in Korea, already you were seeing, so this is before the Vietnam War, you're already seeing members of Congress arguing, and here's one, one such argument, that history will show that on more than 100 occasions in the life of this republic, the president as commander-in-chief has ordered the fleet or the troops to do certain things which involve the risk of war, without seeking congressional consent. So this type of argument is, is raised. Well, this list of precedents, this hundred or so, or hundreds as other people will say, you will, you will search in vain through that list of precedents for anything that comes anywhere near even one quarter of one percent of the significance of the Korean War. Uh, Edward Corwin, uh, whom I cited earlier uh, on Theodore Roosevelt, says this, this list of alleged precedents for the president acting without the consent of Congress consists largely of, quote, fights with pirates, landings of small naval contingents on barbarous or semi-barbarous coasts, the dispatch of small bodies of troops to chase bandits or cattle rustlers across the Mexican border, and the like. This is what the neocons are relying on when they say, oh, there are all these precedents. Yes, right, chasing cattle rustlers across the Mexican border is a precedent for sending a half million troops to the Middle East. I mean, how, how, do you, how does a brain compute that? I mean, how does that come out of a functioning brain? I, I don't understand that. But that's, that's what they mean when they say, oh, gosh, you're just being too unreasonable. We've done this hundreds of times. Yes, if you want to count the cattle rustler thing, then it would be hundreds of times. I, I will, if that's the point you want to make, I will yield it to you. Now, Bill Clinton, to skip way ahead, um, I have to have just one little thing. I've, I've been in this anti-Bill Clinton mode uh, because I, I, in 1992 when he was elected, I think I, I drank my first beer that night because I was at that time the vice president of the Harvard Republicans. Yes, all right, you know, let's hear the hissing. And to me, this was like the world had ended. Like, I can't believe this happened, so I actually drank a beer. I mean, it, so it must have been absolutely catastrophic. And then lately, I've been doing so much radio that uh, you know, with people who want to talk about the Clintons, you know. So you know, I'll, I'll talk about any president because you know they've all been so miserable. You want to talk about Clinton? You know, fine, talk about him. But it's interesting to note that you know Clinton, of course, got away with stuff um, on this because on foreign policy, because the neocons aren't going to criticize Clinton for you know uh, ignoring the congressional re the requirement for, to get a congressional declaration of war like why would they care the, the only thing that they would criticize him for typically is that he wasn't vicious enough like John McCain and Bill Crystal were saying we gotta send ground troops into the Balkans so the big opposition party was saying yeah Clinton's policy is correct just not severe and harsh and savage enough well there's a there's an opposition party for you well the reason I bring him up is that it's true that Congress was sort of sending mixed signals throughout the whole uh, Balkan intervention in, in the uh, early to mid-90s and then in Kosovo in 1999. But nevertheless, in 1999, when uh, Clinton was authorizing the carrying out the, the bombing of the Serbs, 
you actually had a congressional resolution uh, that voted against giving the president authority to bomb the Serbs in 1999, and Clinton went ahead with it regardless. Now that's a, I mean, there's a particular circle of hell, I think, reserved, constitutional hell, reserved for somebody who does that. I mean, it's one thing to say, I've got all these presidential powers, but then when the Congress expressly says, we're not authorizing this, and then you say, well, I don't care because I'm the, I'm the president, that does seem to be a violation of the traditional understanding of how war powers are allocated among the branches. But that, I think that's an, that's an example. But as I say, he'd get away with that because I still don't quite know what it was that the conservatives didn't like about Clinton. Okay, all right, he's a disgusting person. I agree with that. But most presidents are disgusting people, so there's nothing really unique there. Uh, you know, he was re reasonably restrained by modern standards in spending. Uh, he did reform welfare to some degree. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and he went to war a lot. I mean, he bombed a lot of places. So, you know, I don't really see what the, what the big problem is. I mean, other than, you know, maybe he didn't, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, it seems like the arguments against him are, are, are kind of silly, but anyway. Uh, now, in our own modern time, by which I mean the past few years, obviously we all, you know, the current situation involves this, the, the invasion of, of Iraq. And there was, well, very muted, but nevertheless, some attempt to oppose this on constitutional grounds and to argue that the president is exercising power that he does not legitimately possess. And the argument is as follows. When the Congress passes a resolution authorizing the use of force, actually more precisely, telling the president that, you know, we give you the authority to decide if and when you think you should go to war. The argument is that that is an unconstitutional delegation of power that belongs to Congress. That Congress, ha it, it, it is supposed to remain with Congress to decide whether to go to war. You can't delegate to the president the power whether to go to war. You can delegate to him certain limited tasks in directing and carrying out a war, but the decision is supposed to rest with the Congress. So I was just reading not long ago, there's a gentleman, 85-year-old former congressman from rural Nebraska named Claire Callan, who has for a long time been asking the U.S. Supreme Court to declare that the president had no legal authority to go to war in Iraq. And he's carried on with this, and he's got uh, a number of arguments on, uh, to that uh, effect. And he's actually argued, he's arguing it differently from how I would argue it, but he says that the resolution authorizing the president to use force that was passed in October 2002 uh, expressly invoked the War Powers Resolution of 1973. Now, among other things, the War Powers Resolution of, of 1973, was that resolution contained provisions, for example, saying that the president can initiate uh, aggressive action if, there is an, if, if an attack is imminent by another country, then we give him the benefit of the doubt he can initiate something, but it has to be imminent, and then there's a certain limit, uh, a number of days that the operation can go on before it has to get congressional approval, whatever. But the argument that Claire Callan is making is that the president, now, you know how we all thought we heard the president say there's an imminent threat from Iraq? And then when we found out there were no weapons, everyone denied that he ever said that. He never said the threat was imminent. He said it was gathering. It's a gathering threat. He never said it was imminent. But it's all like we almost are sure we heard him say that it was imminent, right? Well, um, interestingly, that works against the president in Callan's argumentation. Because he says, well, if you're going to admit the president never said it was imminent, well, then he's violating the War Powers Act. Because he went to war against a country uh, from whom the threat was, according to him, not imminent. According to his own words right now. Not imminent. That's not the way I would, I would pursue it because, 
you know, then we just get presidents saying, look, the threat of an attack from Somalia is imminent. You know, I mean, they'll just say it, you know, and, and then what do you do? Another way of arguing it is the way that I've suggested, that the, the Congress has no authority to delegate this decision-making power. And there have been a number of attempts to bring to, to various federal courts uh, to bring this issue and force it. And typically it's been dismissed or the, the lower courts say they have no jurisdiction. Uh, that's typically what happens to these cases. But a couple years ago in early 2003, we did get uh, a serious, you know, at least a number of serious attempts, largely by parents of people in the military who got together and they secured the, the cooperation of dozens of, of um, constitutional scholars who, who uh, supported them and, in fact, uh, went ahead and initiated this, uh, this legal challenge. And it's interesting there's that I was just reading about the mother of a 25-year-old Marine said this. When we look at the world community, we see that they had a debate in the Parliament of Turkey. They had a debate in the Parliament of Great Britain. They're having serious debates in legislative bodies all over the world, and yet there is no debate in Congress. And so she and parents of troops joined uh, uh, not only constitutional scholars, but also a dozen uh, congressmen in this lawsuit, whose purpose was to try to stop the president, obviously didn't work, uh, from ordering an attack on Iraq without getting uh, the, the constitutionally required congressional declaration of war. She said, if the rest of the world can debate this war, then America can as well. Our constitution requires that debate. And a, a legal consultant to the case made this point, that this is an unconstitutional delegation of power. Now, it's interesting that in addition to the law professors who signed on to a, a brief in support of the suit, U.S. Representative John Conyers from Michigan went on the record in support of it. Now, Conyers, as I recall, I mean, he's not a guy I'd want to have over for dinner, uh, because, well, actually, there's almost no congressman I'd want to have over for dinner other than Ron Paul. Uh, but, but Conyers, as, as I recall, isn't he the guy in Fahrenheit 9-11 who, who said to uh, Michael Moore, you know, son, we don't have time to read all the legislation that comes before us. You know, how would we ever get anything done? I'm pretty sure that's John Conyers. Okay. All right. I, remember, I remember laughing out loud at that one. Saying, My gosh, do you realize what you're saying here? Well, this is what Conyers said. President Bush recently told journalists that whether we go to war, quote, is not up to you, it's up to me, unquote. The Founding Fathers, continues Conyers, in a rare reference to the Founding Fathers, <laughs> did not establish an imperial presidency with war-making power. The Constitution clearly reserves that for Congress. Okay, I know he means to say that the, that the Constitution reserves the war-making power for Congress, but kind of sounds like it. If we're going to engage in imperialism, the Congress will do it. But I, I, obviously, I know that's not what he means. But so I mean, something is odd in the universe. When I'm looking at a quotation from John Conyers and saying, I don't see anything wrong with this statement. And it's, it's really scaring the heck out of me that, that I'm in complete agreement with, uh, with Conyers. Well, that in a nutshell is, that's the beginning of the, I think, a, a, an overview of the constitutional aspect, the background to that, how it's actually worked out in practice. I think, I think this has been an answer to the, there have been hundreds of examples of the use of force by the president without getting congressional authorization. That is a completely phony argument that could not possibly be advanced by somebody who is seriously looking for the truth. Uh, and then finally carrying things through to today, looking for the various, uh, looking at the various arguments that have been cited uh, in, in support of the, the, the alleged lack of a need to get a congressional declaration of war. It's a, it's a police action 
or I'm the commander-in-chief. That's the most recent one. I'm the commander-in-chief, so I can dispatch troops. No one in early American history believed that the commander-in-chief had that authority. Absolutely nobody. So today, in effect, you, what you have is uh, arguments that are made on the assumption that the American population doesn't know any of this history, and so they can just easily be bamboozled. And I'm sorry to say that uh, it has worked like a charm. Okay, so we end off on a totally depressing uh, conclusion, right? I mean, you know, the war is inevitable. We can't do a thing to stop it. We got crazed presidents, unrestrained by anything. But it's been a great pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Thank you all very much again. All right, folks, that's a longer episode of The Tom Woods Show than usual. But do not turn off your device just yet because I have something I want to tell you about one of my listeners. Now, yes, it's true. It's a new website, but it's more than just that because there's a, there's a twist to it at the end that when I, when I realized it, I said to myself, I just love my people so much. And the site I'm talking about is ethicsofequals.com. And over the course of this blog, the author is in the process of writing a book on ethics based largely on Murray Rothbard's ethic as presented in The Ethics of Liberty. But he says he wants to improve these aspects. Now, hang on a minute, because wait till you hear the twist. He says he wants to improve on the following things. Synthesis of homesteading and abandonment theory a punishment theory where agreement is primary in settling the dispute and an analysis of intervention in crime, that is, assisting a victim of crime. So he's going to explore some open issues or contentious issues or issues that could use some further fleshing out. But the part that really got my attention was, oh, by the way, I'm also writing the blog in Japanese because that's a second language I'm trying to pick up. So I'm going to also incidentally just be writing the blog in Japanese. I thought, I love my people so much. That is so great. So check that out at ethicsofequals.com. I'll link to it on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1736. How did he get this free publicity? Come on, say it with me. He went to tomwoods.com slash publicity, got his hosting through my link, and then he gets me to tell the whole world about his blog, and he gets free video tutorials from me on how to get up and running quickly as a blogger and how to use all the little features, as well as membership in my private bloggers group, which you're going to be glad to be a member of. So get all those goodies lined up. Check them out at tomwoods.com slash publicity before you get that website started, and I'll be glad to do these things for you. All right, tomorrow, guess who's coming back? It's our old friend, Bob Murphy. Have not spoken to him on the show since the demise of our beloved Contra Krugman. We just decided this thing has run its course and we're going to go do different things. Bob Murphy's coming back. It's going to be fantastic. See you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.